But we've been asking the question, what is it about David that is so appealing? When you look at just different civilizations, different time eras, invariably David pops up, whether it's, it's Michelangelo and the Italian Renaissance in the 16th century or, you know, so on and so forth. It seems like David is this, this figure in the Bible that we just can't take our eyes off him. And we've been asking that question, what is it? What is it about David so, so appealing? And we began this series, if you remember, by saying, well, part of the answer is that it, he comes from humble beginnings, He's the last of his name. He's the youngest of the sons, and yet he is chosen as king, which is absolutely the illogical opposite thing you would do in that day and age. It would be the oldest son. And he looked at, as he saw in that clip there, the bravery that he shows against this giant named Goliath. And if you haven't been here or you've missed some Sundays, I encourage you to listen online uh, to the messages that we've been talking about David because he takes on Goliath and he, he, he demonstrates this courage and this bravery. And then last week... We looked at David, and it's where we can relate to him in, in a certain respect. Not all the way, but in a certain respect, David has blind spots. It's one of the reasons why we're drawn to David, is that he's not perfect. He has some flaws. He has blind spots. And in fact, last week, it was a major blind spot that, um, in terms of his affair with Bathsheba, his cover-up and the, uh, cover the killing of uh, Bathsheba's husband Uriah, and it was just a mess. And number number of consequences for David and also for Israel from that point forward. But I think that's one of the reasons why we're, we relate to David is that there is a human aspect to him. And we're going to continue that this morning by looking at uh, more of that, that David is human and he makes mistakes. If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13. And we pick it up. Uh, and this is uh, really the um, ripple effect, not only of of the sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, but also, um, I believe, and Chuck Swindoll in a great biography on David, which is available in our library, by the way, um, is something that actually was a common thread in the life of David in terms of his family. So it's not, as we get to that, uh, you're going to want to note that, and I'll point that out. Second Samuel chapter 13, starting with verse 1. Now David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar, and Amnon, her half-brother, felt desperate in love with her. Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. She was a virgin, and Amnon thought he could never have her. But Amnon had a very crafty friend, his cousin Jonadab. He was the son of David's brother, Shemiah. One day, Jonadab said to Amnon, What's the trouble? Why should the son of a king look so dejected morning after morning? So Amnon told him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Well, he said, I tell you what to do. Go back to bed and pretend you are ill. When your father comes to see you, ask him to let Tamar come and prepare some food for you. Tell him you'll feel better if she prepares it as you watch, as you watch and feeds you with her own hands. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be sick. And when the king came to see him, Amnon asked him, Please let my sister Tamar come and cook my favorite dish as I watch. Then I can eat it from her own hands. So David agreed and sent Tamar to Amnon's house to prepare some food for him. When Tamar arrived at Amnon's house, she went to the place where he was lying down so he could watch her mix some dough. Then she baked his favorite dish for him. But when she set the serving tray before him, he refused to eat. Everyone get out of here, Amnon told his servants. So they all left. Then he said to Tamar, now bring the food into my bedroom and feed it to me here. So Tamar took his favorite dish to him. But as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, come to bed with me, my darling sister. No, my brother, she cried. Don't be foolish. 
Don't do this to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. Where could I go in my shame? And you would be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Please just speak to the king about it and he will let you marry me. But Ammon wouldn't listen to her. And since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. Then suddenly, Ammon's love turned to hate. And he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. No, no, Tamar cried. Sending me away now is worse than you've done already to me. But Ammon wouldn't listen to her. He shouted for his servant and demanded, Throw this woman out and lock the door behind her. So the servant put her out and locked the door behind her. She was wearing a long, beautiful robe. And as was the custom in those days for the king's virgin daughters. But now Tamar tore her robe and put ashes on her head. And then with her face in her hand, she went away crying. Her brother Absalom saw her and asked, Is it true that Amnon has been with you? Well, my sister, keep quiet for now, since he's your brother. Don't worry about it. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard what had happened, he was very angry. Now underline that statement right there. When King David heard what had happened, he was very angry. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about this, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he had done to his sister. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep were being sheared at Baal Hazar near Ephraim, Absalom invited all the king's sons to come to a feast. He went to the king and said, My sheep shears are now at work. Will the king and his servants please come to celebrate the occasion with me? The king replied, No, my son, if we all come, we'd be, we would be too much of a burden on you. Absalom pressed him, but the king would not come, though he gave Absalom his blessing. Well then, Absalom said, If you can't come, how about sending my brother Amnon with us? Why Amnon, the king asked. But Absalom kept on pressing the king until he finally agreed to let all his sons attend, including Amnon. So Absalom prepared a feast fit for a king. Absalom told his men, wait until Amnon gets drunk. Then at my signal, kill him. Don't be afraid. I'm the one who has given the command. Take courage and do it. So at Absalom's signal, they murdered Amnon. And the other sons of the king jumped on their mules and fled. Let me pray this morning. Father God, thank you so much for your word, and I pray for uh, this teaching, God, that you would speak into our lives. And although um, not many of us can relate to the degree of this kind of story, each of us has challenges in some way with family. And God, I pray that your spirit would, would teach us and mold us and form us more in the likeness of Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Everybody said, amen. In your teaching notes that you have in your program this morning, if you want to pull that out, we have a, a, actually an excerpt from uh, all the verses 29. We couldn't get all verses 29 on there, but you have a little, little bit of a summary of, of what happened here. And in that fill in the blank, it's a family run amok. That's what we have here. And again, even though uh, many of us can't relate to the, the degree of something like this, I think each of us in our own way have family issues. And David has this flaw. He has a blind spot because that verse I had you underline, he gets angry, but he doesn't do anything. This is the warrior. This is, this is the guy that was so prone to action. He, he would move and he would, he would take care of things. And it's not just in this passage, in other passages as well. David as a father is really not present. He's present, but he's not present. Things would happen with his kids, and he really wasn't, he wouldn't do anything. He wouldn't take action. And it's no wonder that this murder of his son occurred. 
So this morning, we're going to talk about family. And whether you're single or you're married, we're going to be talking about family and talking about the issues that occur within our families. And this morning, I'm so excited. A good friend of mine, and I think one of the best family and marriage counselors in the Twin Cities, has decided to join us this morning. And Todd Mulliken, I'd like to have him come up here this morning. Let's give him a hand. I got to know Todd through many games of Settlers of Catan <laughs> with our mutual friend Brad Jackson, and most of the time I lost. So I didn't win either, so yeah, that was Brad's deal. Yeah. Well, let's just kind of start out, um, you know, when there's issues like this in, in a family, um, maybe not to that degree, obviously, um, what sort of advice, what sort of counsel as you dissect into a, in terms of a family, uh, in terms of what they can do when you have dysfunction? Uh, well, I think sometimes it helps to start just with the parents, and whether we're in a, a married situation or divorce situation, it helps to know as a parent, if I can get my own uh, engine aligned in Jesus and get settled and feel better, then I'm going to have a better chance to deal with my kids, whether they're having the best of, the, of their life or their worst. So I talk in my book on parenting on five things that parents can do to bring out the best in their kids. And I actually interviewed children from ages 10 to 18 for several years in my office and said, what are some things your parents can do yeah. that would help bring out your best? So there's five quick C's I talk about. The first, which I think is the most encouraging for us as parents, is to be congruent. So let's just live our life the way we want our children to eventually live. And that's, as we see in David's story, that's the way God works, whether it's for blessings or for difficulties. So at the end of the day, um, don't ask your kid to make their bed if your bed isn't made. <laughs> uh, don't, you know, don't yell at them if, <laughs> yeah. if you want them to not yell. So yeah. the good news about it is they don't listen to us sometimes, but they will imitate us. So that's the first thing I have parents work on is just really look at their own story and, and get content and confident in their relationship with God so they can live out how they want their kids to live. And then I have the parents try to be consistent. In most homes I've seen... Uh, you know, Jesus came full of truth and grace. And in most homes, what I've seen, I certainly have seen in my own home growing up, I've been married for 27 years, have three young adult daughters, and my wife and I experience this too sometimes, where one person's really good with truth and one person's really good with grace. And so sometimes in that parenting style, one parent is perhaps too dominant, one parent is perhaps too passive like David was, not mm -hmm. really taking action. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes that inconsistency will press into the children and make it difficult for them. Mm. The dominant parent will be too dominant and maybe too shaming and too harsh. And then the passive parent might not step up mm -hmm. and really follow through with discipline or correction. So I try to work on consistency. And the third one is to be compassionate. So I work especially with that dominant parent that's more controlling to really give grace upon grace, to ask their kids actually what they think. So they don't have to be the parent that gets the last word, that has to win every fight. Because mm -hmm. then the kid will become like that when they're an adult in their romantic relationship. So work with the truth teller on having more grace. And then work with the grace-based parent on actually following through and making the tough call sometimes. The fourth C is to be creative. So let's know the uniqueness of each of our kids. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes I'll have an extroverted parent um, who's does lots of things, will bring in their introverted child and think there's something wrong with their child. And sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. Mm -hmm. So how do I do as a parent knowing the, my own uniqueness and how God has created me? Am I more naturally extroverted? Am I more naturally introverted? But more importantly, how do I understand 
each of my kids is, is created so differently in God's image. And so be creative enough as a parent to steer them into places where their strengths can be. And the last scene, I think probably the most important besides the first one, is to be a parent that confesses when we're wrong. So if I've overreacted with one of my girls, uh, how do I do with really confessing that and owning that versus being the parent that says, well, I can't do that, I'll lose authority, but actually they gain much more respect. So as the parents do those five things, whether they're children, adolescents, or their adult kids are having a great time or really struggling, that safety, that consistency, that stability, that generational pattern can help. Hmm. That's really helpful. Uh, how about, you know, you think about parents, at the end of the day, they're exhausted and they're dealing with the, the conflict or the dysfunction perhaps in, in, their, in their children or in the family. And yet the, the manner in which we um, go about it makes a huge difference. And what kind of what kind of advice would you give to parents when the, the you know the fuel the tank is very empty, and the five C's aren't coming right away That's to us? Right. That's right. That's uh, right. Yeah. You know, in those times where and it's like you know you, you start, the anger is starting to come right. up, yes. and and you want to respond in some way. What like what's a really good tip to a right. parent what they can do in, in the midst of that? Well, and at the risk of I hope none of this sounds like hey just do this and yeah. everything's great. So I apologize if it comes off like that. But uh, I think again know your personality style first. So my style in the home was a more like David. I was more avoidant in conflict. So if, if one of the daughters was doing something which wasn't really often pretty kids, uh, I would probably have a harder time confronting her. And so I needed to work on hey, you know what, if I confront and share my feelings, that's really going to be helpful versus avoiding that. So that's the, I think that's the takeaway for the pleaser in the home. Yeah. Address the conflict. doesn't mean we're looking for conflicts, but address it with your kid. And the pleasers usually do a good job of allowing their kids to have their own feelings back, which is very important. Yeah. So then for the controller who goes to the top of Anger Mountain, I call it really quick, and when we, you and I are at the top of Inger Mountain, things usually aren't going very well. So no. <laughs> we're not doing well. But when we're on the top of Inger, you know, so the key for the controlling parent is to, is to go into that situation ahead of time knowing how do I regulate my engine first? Yeah. How do I bring my best? How do I pray for empathy, pray for guidance? And I want to leave that situation with my kids saying what's on their mind. Hmm. I want to have a need to understand versus a need to win. So that's self-awareness. Yeah, it's, it's huge. huge. Yeah. And, we, doesn't, and doesn't mean it always goes well. Yeah. You know, the gospel wasn't just a party. You yeah. Know? David's life wasn't a party. Sometimes there are conflicts. But if the parent can maintain and regulate how they manage their emotions, because the kids' brains are younger. You know, they're not as developed. So they're going to go from very happy to very sad in five minutes or five seconds sometimes. And we want to be able to expect that as a parent. And we all know that the, the kids of counselors and the kids of pastors are perfect. That's right. Yeah. Right? That's, we never yeah. have family problems. No, no, at all. I, I can't remember the last time I had an issue. So. Yeah, we, no. just, we just play board no, games. That's right. <laughs> we just play Settles of a Catan and we're fine. Yeah. Let's talk about marriage. What, what sort of advice would you give towards um, maybe couples that are thinking about marriage, uh, newly married, about to start a family? Um, those of us who've been married for a number of years and kids in college and um, others that have, uh, you know, adult children, what, what can we do in our marriages to really, um, you know, bring about the best? 
Well, I talk again about five areas, and maybe it depends on what season we're in, which of these five has most importance. Yeah. The first thing I do is work with couples on their personality style. Again, uh, I'm more extroverted. My wife's more introverted in the first year of marriage. Because you don't really notice that when you're courting. You know, everything's beautiful, and, you know, yeah. it's, it, nothing's ever wrong, you know. So in her first year, I recognized that she would like to do less things in a day and read and reflect and re-energize that way. And I was going, what's wrong with her? Okay. <laughs> and she was saying, what is this guy doing? You know, he's running all over the place. He's not really listening to a complete sentence. He's, he's buzzing around. He's working the room. I mean, what is, Jesus, who is this guy? You know, so a lot of times with couples, the differences in just their natural personalities, they start to take personally. So I work with couples on accepting each other's differences. Some people like to start projects. Some people like to finish projects. <laughs> some people are keepers. Some people are throwers, right? And so I'll be in business for a while. But, <laughs> but so again, understanding your personality differences versus trying to change each other is the first thing. The second thing is, is this may sound a little cheesy, but be the home, be the couple that does what I call five to one. Give each other five affirmations for, mm -hmm. every one conf mm -hmm. for every one criticism. And in courtship, that's a blast. We're doing that all the time. Oh, you're wonderful, and oh, oh you're so great. And, yeah. <laughs> and you know, that <laughs> tends to change. Uh, but can really? we... <laughs> not for you, I forgot who I'm talking to here. So, but the idea there is, we're, are we looking, are we having God's eyes for each other? Yeah. Or are we trying to you know, lovingly say, well, here's the 23 things I'd like you to work on and get back to me. <laughs> so the thought is, how are we doing with five to one? Looking for the best, affirming well. The third thing, what's the hardest, is how do we do conflict well? Hmm. And I talk about four things. I talk about speak without offending, listen without defending. Good luck with that. Um, the third one is agreeing to disagree sometimes. Mm -hmm. And the fourth is confessing your own part. So my wife and I have battled those first three, but we've really gotten good at that last one. Can you elaborate on, this, this, on that first one, speak sure. about offending? So if I, something I'm, you know, I'm frustrated with my wife about some issue, I can either say, Gal, I can't stand when you do that. You do that all the time. You drive me crazy. That's pretty offensive, right? <laughs> okay. Instead of I say, hey, you know, not talking like a therapist, but just say, hey, when that happened, I was kind of frustrated. How do you see it? Very non-offensive. Hmm. Then the key, harder than that, is I think for the listener to say when, the, when your spouse or partner is criticizing you about something that they're concerned about, how do you say, well, hey, what about you? Or, you know, last time I checked, look at the loggers in your own eye, pal. You know, so how do we do it said in, in kind of saying, well, tell me more about that, or I'm kind of hurt by what you said, but I want to listen to what you have to say. So those first two volleys, Craig, are so important. Whether it's parent to parent, uh, couple to couple, or parent to child, those two are big. And then sometimes we have to agree to disagree. My wife and I still won't perfectly agree on how to parent our daughters, even though they're 25, 24, and 22. Yeah. But there's many things we do agree on. Yeah. So let's, let's not be defined by our worst, but learn from that. Hmm. So those are just a a few things to think about. And then the last one is confessing. Yeah. So, hey, you know what? I'm really sorry for my words. Hmm. I know that hurts you, and truly, I am sorry. I want to work on that pattern where my rage just gets the best of me, and that's on me. Yeah. Or, you know, I'm sorry I gave you this island treatment for half a day. That's on me. Hmm. I needed to come to you quicker. So when people can really do their own work, 
then conflict is, is manageable mm -hmm. and the couple isn't defined by it. But most homes are defined by their worst moments mm -hmm. versus learning from their worst moments and being defined by their victories. When that confession happens, when they own it, what, what happens? What's the, it's powerful. It's so powerful. I mean, God's grace just intervenes, and it doesn't mean the sky is open and a hallelujah chorus starts, yeah. but it means, hey, we have a, that is a moment where we, we remember we're for each other, yeah. and God is for us. Yeah. Even though we're struggling, he is for us. He is for this relationship. And same with divorce situations, if we're dealing with a, a co-parent that's really tough or really hard to be with, how are we not enabling or modeling that unhealthy co-parent, but how are we speaking our truth and love, but seeing how they feel about things too. So we want to continue to model truth and grace as best as we can. Good. Well, let's, you know, as, as I mentioned, we talked about David and Bathsheba last week, and you, you wrote a book on affairs and what happens in, in, in a marriage. Uh, I want you to share just uh, your insight and um, your, your teaching on that. Okay. Uh, well, many years ago, I started to see certain patterns of affairs where I would see one pattern, which is a more often the man than the woman, where they would be a, a person that had affairs early in life, and then they brought that pattern into marriage, and it didn't stop. It has nothing to do with their wife or who she was. It had everything to do with the characterological pattern that yeah. the man brought into it. So it's what I call in my book, The Double Life Man. There's a pattern of affairs. Women occasionally will do that, but usually don't see that as often with the woman. The second most common affair is uh, the woman who's the, the loving, nurturing, quiet, people-pleasing woman who usually had a dominant parent who she was the listener to, and, and she was great. She was helpful to people, a great friend, loved Jesus, strong in her faith, but she was being controlled and controlled and controlled in her marriage, and she eventually finds somebody at work or in the church or somewhere else, unfortunately, where that will listen to them, and then they become very vulnerable and uh, fall in love with that person, and then it's really hard because when a pleaser gets into an affair, it takes a while for him or her to get into it and it takes a while to get out of it. Mm. And once in a while, you'll see a man do that too, the, the nice guy, if you will, that's passive and avoidant. It's a little bit like David was in the home where he was more avoidant. He wouldn't mm -hmm. confront. He wasn't that warrior in the home where mm -hmm. he led well. He was very avoidant in conflict and mm -hmm. shut down. At least that's what we hear mm -hmm. you know, generally. So that guy can be vulnerable, too, if he allows himself to continue to be controlled and then at halftime in life finds a woman that he feels is more attractive emotionally, physically, whatever, and they become vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So those are the most common affairs I see. And then I work with, try to heal that. And statistics are tough with infidelity. 65% of couples that have an affair lead to divorce. Mm -hmm. Of the 35% that stayed together, only 25% have a good marriage. But that slice right there are the couples that really have a better marriage than they ever had mm. because they're doing the work mm -hmm. versus taking that to, to their next relationship. And what has to happen is the adulterer has to be remorseful for what he or she has done. And then they have to provide reassurance that the affair is over and that they really are wanting to heal the marriage. Now, that's not magical. That takes time, mm -hmm. and it takes true repentance from that. Mm -hmm. And then the person who was cheated on has probably an even a more difficult task, and that is eventually choosing to trust mm -hmm. versus living in mistrust their whole life, mm -hmm. and then choosing to forgive because the alternative is worse, which mm -hmm. would be to build mm -hmm. resentment and bitterness and 
be locked into that closet. So when the couples can do those areas well, when there's true remorse, true reassurance, true, mis- true trust and forgiveness, then they do the deeper work of what got them there in the first place yeah. and do the learning so they come out of it better than they ever were. But that's a small slice yeah, because those are hard things to get over. Yeah. Why, why is it that actually the marriage can become better? Well, usually going into it, you know, most, you know, the affair is never the answer. Yeah, it's usually sure. a symptom. Yeah. So it's either a symptom of that double life person yeah. who usually saw a dad cheat, so he's cheating. Yeah. Um, or they, they, they were exposed to a lot of adultery, so that's what they know. Monkey see, monkey do, if you will. Uh, but oftentimes it's the couple that just, you know, the, the relationship becomes very transactional and doesn't grow and doesn't do the good work of moving forward. Hmm. So um, the last two things I talk about in marriage, uh, for marriage enrichment as well as a fair recovery, is what I see that makes most marriages vulnerable is uh, the man stops pursuing. In one of the books I wrote, it talks about five ways to bring out the best in your spouse. And I work with a man on being the pursuer of his wife, noticing her, making her feel special being on the offense, because a lot of guys are on the defense saying, okay, what did I do wrong now? And just give me a list. And, you know. mm-hmm. and when they're on the defense, it doesn't mean it's all bad. But when they're pursuing their wife, then they spiritually, emotionally, then usually the woman responds in kind to that. And then I work with the woman on her main thing to work on is to try to be more accepting and affirming of who he is versus looking at what he isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of marriages um, become transactional as the kids are being raised. They don't spend time together. They don't spend time on their own individually. So the time piece is really important for families that are starting to have kids. Mm-hmm. The best gift to give your kids is a good marriage, not family time, even though family time is important. But really the best gift to give the kids is for them to see a good marriage because hmm. that's what they'll put in their brain and that's what they'll look for when they're an adult. That's interesting because oftentimes you hear about the family time being so essential. Right. But a good marriage just has a, rip, a ripple effect right. in terms of the entire family unit. Uh, that's what I believe. And I also think, especially when working with young moms who are stay-at-home or if, uh, occasionally the father will be at home, they've got to take time for themselves yeah. too. <laughs> so I work with a couple and making sure every week they sit down. Are we dating? Are we having a getaway? And then also, are we, how are you doing with your own individual time? So that when we are with our kids, we're more at our best versus you know, being at our worst. Yeah. So we got to play some Catan occasionally. We got to, yeah. we got to have some of those individual things that men like to do that women like to do. So we come back with some energy. So we come back with some excitement and some desire to be there. Are you seeing a, uh, this increased role in, in social media in terms of uh, causing problems in marriages, uh, the temptation to reach out to that old girlfriend from, from high school, things like that. Um, what, what are you seeing in today's age? Well, just with affairs in general, you know, 70% at least that I've worked with have been at work. And then the second most common is what you mentioned. It's, mm. you know, it's kind of the old flame from high school 350 years ago kind of thing mm-hmm. where you're, um, you know, you're drawn to something that really wasn't that real, you know, but it sure feels better than the grind. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, the, the quick hits that we can make of finding people, again, there's beautiful things with Facebook. It's fantastic in many ways. but. Mm-hmm. But if it's used as a vehicle for, you know, touring and, you know, or pornography and some of those horrific things, when mm-hmm. it's used for those tools of Satan, then we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. And makes, it, just, it makes the affair happen more quickly. There's yeah. more opportunities for it. So I don't think we should run and hide, 
But, yeah. I, but I think we should um, be aware of that and be honest about our feelings with our spouse. So the best, the best protection from infidelity really is when the marriage is starting to uh, become more transactional and flat. Mm -hmm. We've got to talk about it and how do we get it better mm -hmm. versus finding another person to come into that and adulterate the mix. Mm -hmm. Let's switch gears. And, and uh, you and I talked about this, that one of the uh, questions I've received from people is they're, they're dealing with uh, an aging parent or aging parents, and um, either with the parent or with their siblings, the, some of that dysfunction comes back. The, the stuff from 20 years ago that, that they, they thought was gone, they're now dealing with as they're trying to strategize how to care for mom. What kind of, what kind of advice would you, would you give to them? Yeah, I'm doing a four-week series coming up at another church called The Sandwich Generation. So a lot of people our age yeah. were dealing with our adult children, and we're also dealing with aging parents. Yeah. So we're kind of sandwiched in between. Hmm. But to your point, I, again, none of the, I hope none of this is made to sound simple and easy, and I apologize again if it does. But the key there, I think, is to, again, get settled and know yourself well in Christ. From my inside out... I know my truth. My sibling is kind of controlling, and so he or she is kind of being this way with mom, and they're aging, and I'm not going to change her or him, but I also shouldn't stay away from it. So mm -hmm. I'm for mom and her aging process, so I'm going to do my first boundary, which is have an honest conversation. Hey, I feel like you were kind of controlling there, and I see that person and tell them to do that, and, of course, they come back and see me the next week and say, that was horrible advice. Why did you tell me to do that? <laughs> <laughs> because it doesn't go very well. Yeah. The controlling person overreacts. and So I work with them on just creating their own boundaries so that what they're doing with that aging parent is they're for his or her aging process, and they're working on knowing their style. Am I more controlling or am I more pleasing? Now, sometimes the aging parent has been that matriarch or patriarch mm -hmm. in the family is very narcissistic or controlling, and I'm that passive son who's, you know, dealing with his or her aging, and they don't want to hear about it at all. And so I got all that, if you will, little post-traumatic stress reactions where I'm being re-exposed to something that I remember from childhood that was scary or hard, and I've been able to be away from it because I'm in a good marriage, and oh boy, here we go again. Mm -hmm. So I've got to recognize that I'm going to have some feelings, try to pray through that, and just try to be what I call an inside-out person. Here's my inside in Christ. I'm just going to be honest with my parent about what I think is next best for their care. Uh, two of the siblings disagree with me, but here's what I think, and I'm just going to stay honest about what I think. Mm -hmm. So when, when you and I are content and confident in mm -hmm. Christ, then we'll be open to different views. Mm -hmm. We won't run away, and we won't have to win. Mm -hmm. And I think that just helps day-to-day, -day, stay honest, stay congruent, stay consistent. Uh, and it doesn't mean the problem is solved. Sure. <laughs> it just means it gives us strength to handle it well. Yeah. Thanks so much, Todd. Uh, why don't you share just some of the resources that you have available at the, in the lobby, and you'll be available after the service, and your website, too. We want you to share a little bit about that. So I have a website, which is just my name, toddmullican.com, and I send out free weekly tips, uh, just a little paragraph. Like right now I'm doing, it comes every Monday morning. Right now it's just on uh, the characteristics of a controlling person and how do we set boundaries with those types of people. So I have those. Those are easy sign-ups, and I have three books I've written. They're all out there. They're 10 bucks a piece. Uh, one's on affairs. One's on ways to bring out the best in your kids. One's on the ways to bring out the best in your spouse. 
and those are also available on my website. So. Okay. Well, I encourage you after this morning's service to stop by and talk to Todd, and, and maybe you have a question or two. Um, he'd love to, to talk to you and, and also just talk about his ministry as well. Let me pray for us. Father God, families are challenging. It's, it's tough work. And we embrace the grace that is given to us in Christ Jesus. We're not perfect. We have flaws. I pray that this teaching, um, the tips and insight that uh, was provided here, that Todd shared with us, um, would uh, be something that we would carry into practice, uh, something very practical uh, in our marriages, uh, perhaps even though in uh, a fiancé in an engaged couple, uh, perhaps for uh, couples that have just newborns as they're looking ahead. And others of us who have older children um, or adult children, that uh, this teaching would uh, really guide us as well. Uh, so God, thanks so much for uh, your presence and uh, bless us in our families, bless us in our relationships. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's give Todd a hand this morning. Thanks, buddy.